brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I am Ian Scotto here with Jack Murphy as usual. Uh, this show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's some great stuff on there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items sell out quick, so you really got to act now. For example, we've got a few more Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and Crate Club Fishing Spears, but other items like that Gerber Multi-Tool, those are gone. It's up on its own section on CrateClub.us, or you can go to the uh, store.crateclub.us link. That's store.crateclub.us to check it all out. Once again, store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear you're going to love right there on Airdrop. Uh, we have Thomas Pecora coming on this show. Excellent response to the show's last week. They're getting a lot of plays, actually, for the first time. Checked out our stats on Spotify because it was kind of like a slow um, build up on Spotify. And it's uh, it's really building uh, like a lot of followers if you listen on Spotify. And the cool thing about Spotify that other channels don't have is it gives you a pretty like uh, complete rundown of who your listeners are. And it's like 95% male, but like I, I was uh, sort of surprised because we have a lot of female listeners who are like hardcore fans that tweet us about every show and stuff like that, but it's still a like predominantly, predominantly male fan base. And then it was like 0% non-binary, non-gender specific. So it's just- How, how does Spotify even like measure that, I wonder? Like, I think when you sign up- You have to enter your gender? I, I guess, you know, because wow. it also has the demographics of age, you know, and our listeners are mainly, it's like- 25 to probably 40 that's like the bulk of the demographic it's cool to see all that uh so it was my first time looking at that in a while but it's just the plays are are tremendous this past week i mean it's i believe like a hundred thousand plays this past week it's doing awesome that's unreal yeah i'm i'm very uh excited for how big this thing has gotten um the big news today that i heard that you heard last night actually that you sent over to me is that michael behanna has been pardoned by president trump We had First Lieutenant Michael Behenna on way back. I was looking five years ago on episode 88, a very long time ago, uh, which is when he was first released. And he served five years of a 15-year sentence in Fort Leavenworth for murdering or allegedly murdering, you know, the known terrorist Ali Mansour Mohammed, uh, which he said was in self-defense. I reached out to Vicky Behenna, who is the contact I had, his mother. Uh, they're doing, of course, like some big things. They're, they're doing Hannity, but I might be able to get her on or him on um, next yeah. episode. Yeah, no, so. I'd love to follow up on that because, like you said, it was five years ago. Yeah. We interviewed him. It was like right after he got paroled out, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was pretty much immediately. I was looking at the story. We, I think we were one of the first who had him on. Yeah, so I mean, that's like one of those stories that's good for us to follow up on, I think. Yeah, and I, and I think they were kind of loyal to, uh, I, I would say, me because of the fact that I heard about Behenna's case actually on Michael Savage's radio show. And, and you know, it's funny, like people kind of criticize talk radio for being uh, incendiary and stuff, but sometimes these type of cases are only covered on like conservative talk radio. The mainstream media wasn't talking about Michael Behenna. Uh, when he was when he was in Fort Leavenworth, Michael Savage was one of the only guys I know of who was talking about this. So I heard about it from there. I was producing David Webb's show. I wanted to get Vicky Behenna on to talk about it, and I stayed in contact with her. So when he was released, I was able to text uh, Vicky, his mother, and ask if we can get him on. And she uh, pulled through, and and yeah, I just texted her and said congratulations. And she's like, I, I'll actually read the text of what she said. Um, yeah, I mean, in the meantime, listeners can go back and listen to, what is it, episode 88. Yeah, and, and she just said, thank interview. you, Ian. We're so very happy. So Yeah, no, I, I bet, you know, um, it, it's uh, symbolic in some ways because he's already out of prison, served his sentence, but now he doesn't have a criminal record anymore because he's been pardoned. So I'm sure it means a lot to him and his family. I, I wonder how this was brought to Trump's attention. And the thing is, I would not be surprised if it was that talk radio has a ear you know of president trump the fact that guys that we know have been to the white house and have gotten a chance to talk to president trump about issues that are of concern and like i said he's going to be on hannity today i would not be shocked if someone like sean hannity said hey this is an important thing people who um are pro-military are behind this guy it would it would be a great symbolic gesture to pardon him and yeah it wouldn't surprise me i think uh it, it speaks to trump's base um, so I would expect to see him do more of that. Uh, I, I honestly, I, I think the play that President Trump is going to make is to pardon Eddie Gallagher during the 2020 re-election campaign. Um, what, whatever you think about um, Chief Gallagher, and I don't uh, know if the guy is innocent or guilty, which is why I've avoided playing Barrick's lawyer on this podcast um, to some people's chagrin. But <laughs> Um, no, I was, I was saying yesterday, you know, people get mad at me because I haven't like had a passionate stance on this thing. And it's like, they want me to wear the free Eddie shirt. And it's like, Hey man, like I'm a journalist. I have to be a little bit more impartial and, and unbiased about it. But, um, you know, that's going to play out in court. His trial comes up in July, I believe. I would not be surprised if that thing gets dragged out in appeals and things like that. If Trump plays that up. Um, as much as he can and then pardons him during yeah. his re-election campaign. A lot of people are behind him. And, and I think people who don't even know the full story, they, they do have an emotional response to it. It's an Navy SEAL um, who they feel is being treated unfairly. And people who are pro-military are oftentimes, you know, Dude, I, this I, guy. I get it to some extent. But uh, like I had somebody come at me like, oh, it seems like the prosecutors are just trying to get a conviction. It's like, buddy, do you know how our legal system works? Prosecutors try to get convictions. The defense tries to get a not guilty verdict. Like that is that is due process. That is part of our legal system. Like uh, if you're getting mad about this stuff, I mean, I, I mean, I understand that there's frustration, there's anger, and I understand that Eddie Gallagher's family is going through a lot of shit, and I, I don't judge them for defending their family member. I mean, they're they're right to do that, right? 
But there are some folks out there just like ranting and it's like, man, you need to go back to like take a civics 101 course and learn about how your government and how your justice system works before you start getting like you're getting mad that prosecutors are looking to prosecute. Like that's, yeah. I don't know what to tell you about that. I, by the way, I just received the text from Vicky Behenna um, about coming on for our next episode. She said, I could try. Give me the time. I may have to be in court. So I'll text her back after the show, uh, figure out a time. As okay. I said, it would Great. be interesting if he if he or Vicky comes on on Thursday uh, for the Friday show because we also have Fred Galvin coming on, and Fred Galvin and Michael Vanna are kind of in the same category of guys who accused of war crimes. Yeah, yeah. accused of war crimes. Vanna uh, actually served time in Fort Leavenworth, and and Galvin was exonerated. His men were exonerated. Yeah. But it deeply affected both of them, as yeah. we know. Galvin for a while was when you Googled him, people thought war criminal. So I mean, I, I told I told Fred when we had him on the first time, I was like, "That's what I had always heard about the first Marsoc deployment. Yeah, is that you guys were just cowboys, just running and gunning, you know, gunning down villagers, and, and all of that turned out to be false." Yeah. Um. All right, I have some great emails to get to, so let's get to that. But I'm actually going to open these windows because it is yeah, sure, fucking stuff in here. Language, please. <laughs> Language, Ian. There's kids listening to this. Okay, we're a, we're a family show. I feel like you should leave this in here. Family show. Should I leave that in here instead of editing it out? I, I don't even do what you want. Anymore. I mean, I think people are used to just putting up with our bullshit on the show, you know? If you do, I'm going to spin a big story, you know, like... I don't even look directly down. I'm just like, whoa. I say, it was all too much for Ian. He threw himself out the window. (laughs) We're on the 30th floor. It it was because we didn't get enough five-star ratings on our podcast reviews (laughs) on on iTunes. And and Ian just jumped. He said, fuck it. I'm officially keeping this all in. I was going to edit it out, but it's been (laughs) been amusing. So you guys could hear uh, what I usually would edit out. I'm going to have Remember Ian t-shirts. I'm going to start selling them for $24.95 on my website. No profits to my family. (laughs) No profits to to the Ian Charitable Fund. Um, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to go spend it at gentlemen's clubs. Nice. You have my approval. Now, uh, like, uh, oral consent or something on the podcast. So, all right, um, let's get into this. Uh, Email sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. This one is from Josh. Hello, Jack and Ian. I have a couple questions for Jack. What stance do you take on foreign intervention when it comes to counterterrorism now that the GWAT is technically over? Is there a better method of using special forces to train FID? I think you've said this before. What is FID for those? Foreign internal defense. Okay. And host nation military units than what we have been doing. Uh, What steps can the U.S. take in foreign affairs to improve results and effectiveness in countering terror groups? I know it's a lot for Q&A on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Keep up the great work. Josh. Yeah, that's a huge, huge question. I mean, that's like the quandary of our time since 9-11. I I think that there's a number of things that you can do to try to reduce terrorism. Um, That's why we've been active in in North Africa, and we've had soldiers deployed to uh, Niger, Burkina Faso, 
Um, what are some of the other adjoining countries where we have guys? Mali, um, the Europeans have been active in Central African Republic because these are at-risk populations um, because of the encroaching Islamic fundamentalism combined with the uh, inherent poverty of the region that makes people susceptible. So we've been trying to get uh, a head start on it, uh, you know, try to intervene before one of these countries turns into, you know, the next Afghanistan and you have like terrorist training camps and all sorts of crazy shit. So we're trying to get ahead of the ball there. Um, to counter terrorism, it requires, um, you know, a, a holistic approach that addresses the social, political, economic and, and um, security aspects of these countries. And we some of sometimes we don't do a very good job with that. Um, our efforts um, are discombobulated. They are not unified. Um, but other times it, it's also, you know, the host nation has a say in all of this too. And if that host nation is just completely corrupt, then uh, it may be very difficult for us to operate effectively there and to help them help themselves. I mean, it might not, if you're giving them money for counterterrorism endeavors, but some minister is putting it all in his pocket and then going to live in exile in Paris, <laughs> like, okay, it doesn't matter, you know, how good a job we do at that point. Um, from a, a military or a special operations aspect, I would just say that I, I think there's a real value and an importance in persistent long-term engagement, meaning that we have specialists. Um, you could say we have, let's say we have ODAs that specialize in a country and they go back to that country time and time and time again, and they build relationships. Um, you know, so the, the, the young, let's say, uh, soldier they train in that country 20 years later is the general in charge of their armed forces and we have that long-term relationship with that person and with those people with those troops that we built uh i'm a big advocate of replicating the um the special forces detachment korea model that we have these um special forces soldiers and ones and twos even that are peeled off and they are embedded inside south korean battalions and, and brigades and those personnel rotate in and out, but we have that persistent long-term engagement. And I think we should set up resident teams like that in other countries. Um, we have guys in the Philippines, for example, um, special forces, MARSOC SEALs going back and forth, and they do great work over there. But I think we should have a resident team there, I think. And there's all many other countries around the world where we should have resident teams that operate in that same manner to keep that kind of persistent engagement rather than like a, a stop start, you know, stutter stepping kind of approach. All right. Great. Great answer there. Uh, and pretty in depth. So another, another question here, and you'll laugh at some of this. Uh, this is from Joseph Parrish. I wanted to add my compliments and respect to the pile that you've accumulated in regards to Murphy's Law. <laughs> I've been a fan and listened faithfully for what I think is six or seven years, estimation. I assumed things about you, for instance. I used to call you a liberal. <laughs> now, after reading your book, I realize how stupid that assumption was. My apologies for that. There's so many stories hidden within you. It's impressive how this book is the first I've ever read or heard about these exploits. You seem to be an old man trapped in a young man's body, archaic soul. The audiobook with your narration really brings this to life. Uh, for, first I read, then I listened. Jack, please do all you can to keep the podcast alive and moving. I still don't want to accept Ian leaving, <laughs> sorry, uh, but I have to. I'll miss Ian and follow his next project, but I don't want SoftRep completely remodeled. Uh, much respect, Joseph Parrish. Yeah, man, thank you so much. Like That means a lot to me, and, and I've heard a lot of feedback about the book, and um, 
there's a lot of real talk in the book and people have yeah. responded to it and you, you never really know how that's going to go down or people going to be like, Oh, I, I wanted more, you know, blood splatter and, you know, <laughs> like you, it should be about you face shooting terrorists and, and nothing else. Uh, but there's a lot of real talk in the book and people responded to it and it really connected with people. And I think in a meaningful way, and I've, I've gotten a lot of messages and stuff like that. Um, if you guys read the book, I mean, I appreciate it if you can drop a review on Amazon that like really helps the book get some traction and, um, just like reading the reviews and the private messages and DMS and stuff I've gotten, it's all been like super positive. Um, and it's just funny and I, I guess not really funny, but I just say this to, um, all the other guys out there who are kind of like holding these stories. in. I mean, they're like Vietnam veterans who like held it in for 50 years before they talked to anybody about the war. Um, like he said, I never really talked about a lot of this stuff and I finally wrote it in the book and it was like, man, like it's all this stuff that you're kind of like holding on to. Um, and then when you like, even, even in your personal life stuff, you don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then when like I published it, put it out into the world, it's in every bookstore in the country, I <laughs> guess right now. And you know, everyone can go and listen to the audio book or buy the ebook or whatever it's out there now. And it, it's like, at the end, it's like really not that big of a deal. You know, like I was kind of, building things up into my head and I should have just, I mean, it's not that I was ever like, it just like, like I said, in the first chapter of the book, the, in the, in the uh, prologue, I, it was just like, I avoided it. Like I didn't want to like confront some of those things. So I'm glad that I did. And I'm glad that other people are reading it and I'm glad that they're, you know, taking something away from the book. So, um, thanks for reaching out, man. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, how does it feel to kind of fulfill this dream? I'm sure you've, you know, people do dream of having a book that's out on a major publisher, getting, a lot of press and you're living it right now. This is like a chapter of your life book right now that you accomplished this goal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was never like, like a a specific goal. Like I want to be published through a big author, a big um, publishing house. But I mean, it's a, to walk into a bookstore, like your books, like gray matter splatter. If you walk into a Barnes and Noble, you're not going to be able to find North Dakota, you know, you're not yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I mean, maybe it hasn't like totally struck home how big a deal it is uh, quite yet. Um, But uh, it's incredible. It's surreal. I mean, I sent um, I mailed I've mailed out a lot of books to my friends as well, like former teammates and stuff like that. And uh, I actually was able to sign a book and mail it out to a retired operator um, the other day. And uh, it was a guy who is mentioned in the book, but he's not mentioned by name. Um, because I'm not going to, you know, drop dime on, on this guy. Um, he's a really good guy, really low key down to earth dude. Um, but some of the stuff this guy did, like if it was in a novel or in a movie, like you wouldn't believe it. Like there's a vision people have, like the public has in their mind of like what special operations is like. And the reality I feel is more like my book where, yeah, there's some moments out of a recruitment commercial, but it's also a lot of other shit. Right. Well, this guy, his career is kind of what people think it is. Like he did some wild, wild stuff. Um, So I I was really happy that I was able to mail him a book uh, the other day and uh, and he'll get to read some parts uh, that will sound very familiar to him. Nice. Um, This is my favorite email that that I think I already sent to you because I loved it. 
uh, from Ryan Vance. Jack, don't tell me you appeared on multiple news outlets regarding your book, including Fox and Friends, which, which the president watches and did not take the opportunity to talk about the Big Bang in Pyongyang. Safrep has been trying to spread the word for years now, man. You really blew a big opportunity. <laughs> Love the show. Looking forward to reading your book. I was so tempted to just like look into the camera when I was on Fox and Friends and be like, President Trump, only you can save us from the deep state. Nancy <laughs> Pelosi hates my book because it tells the truth. And then he would have tweeted about it. Yeah. The question is, is, I know we were discussing it off air. Like, does he watch Fox and Friends on weekends? Because I don't know. He, Supposedly. We know he does. he does on the weekdays, but weekends are like golf time. Like, that's Mar-a-Lago going golfing time. Who knows, man? <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. It'd be interesting to just know if he wa- if he woke up in the morning watching you. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Yeah, I mean, it's could possible. Be. It's possible it didn't happen. I don't know. I got to say, I I should probably like refine my message and make it more like you know sound bites for television. But like we talked about some, I got to talk about like getting smuggled into Syria by the PKK and how they're like designated a foreign terrorist organization by our government. And I got to say stuff like that on Fox, which you don't hear on. Yeah, like TV, you know, broadcast news too often. Yeah, they're they're probably like, who the hell is the PKK? Like, like, what's this dude talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting, man. All right, well, uh, I mean, a lot of press for Murphy's Law there, so pick it up. Uh, I guess we're gonna get right over to Thomas Pecora, who's back on for his second appearance. So back on the podcast for his second appearance, CIA officer Thomas Pecora, author of Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. It's out today as we're recording on Post Hill Press. Uh, Thomas was last on episode 410 with us discussing the early years of protective operations cadre, a uh, friend of Dale Comstock, so hooked us up. And we're glad to have you back on. This is a big deal because it was uh, a few months ago when we heard about the book and we figured we'd have you back on as the book got released. And it's got so many interesting stories. And I, I think people really responded to the first interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me back. And I'm glad that people liked the interview. Yeah. Now that I, uh, I have a copy of the book in my hands, I've been flipping through it and reading parts of it. And uh, this is a really unique book because we have a lot of memoirs out there and a lot of books written by former CIA case officers. Um, very few who worked on you know the paramilitary side at all. Um, and certainly none from the guys who worked um, protective details. Yeah, and, and there's looking at the at uh, the previous books that have been written. I, I, I basically in preparation uh, for writing the book, I read as many books written by agency personnel as I could to get a feel for what they talk about and what they're able to talk about. And um, uh, this. My story is a lot different. It comes from a different point of view because mm-hmm. I'm, I was protecting those case officers as they were the majority of people who actually wrote books. I got the sense that you were, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were able to tell some of these stories as long as you were kind of vague and nonspecific. Like we were in a North African country when. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, the, the publication, the CIA Publication Review Board, um, kind of went through a policy uh, switch. And uh, the reason why I can say this is I, I spoke to uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was the head of the, of the Counterterrorism Center. His book uh, came out just before I got my first manuscript into the Publication Review Board, the CIA's um, reviewing entity. And 
uh, his, now mind you, he was a very senior guy. His, um, his process was much different than mine. His was only a couple of months long. Um, uh, when I first submitted my book, uh, my manuscript, they, uh, they sat on it for a year. Wow. And then I had to kind of come back to him and say, hello. <laughs> and then they, they sent me an email saying, uh, well, this is just, this is overwhelming. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> well, let's start with step one. And, um, uh, it, it was a struggle. It was a struggle, um, and, uh, to try to, uh, explain to them, you know, here's, here's all the different books that have written similar things. Here's all the open source stuff. Here's the stuff that isn't open source, you know, directly, but, uh, indirectly is open source. So it, it was a struggle. Don't you find it That's weird when, when you have to like correct them and be like, Oh wait, you previously declassified this. Like this isn't a secret anymore. Yeah, th- those those are some tense moments because I'm I'm a bit of a pack rat and, a, and I'm a, and I've had a lot of time to work on this. I used to show up at the meetings because you can't bring any electronic into the meetings with them, with uh, you know a foot to two feet of paper, uh, basically um, photocopied sections of books where other uh, agency, uh, retired agency officers had written about, you know, these certain subjects in their books. And sometimes I was able to win the day, and other times I just get this look across the table. <laughs> like, okay, you're not going to be able to say that. So how long did it take all, all together to get it through the PRB? Uh, three years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. It was a, it was a struggle. And there were times when I was like, really, is, uh, is this going to be worth it? And, it, you know, is it going to be, I, I kept um, thinking about the uh, Hemingway story of the old man in the, in the sea <laughs> and where he catches this big fish. And by the time he gets to the shore, it's a skeleton. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, if the death, death of a thousand uh, redactions. Um, and there were just a boatload of redactions. I, but, but I worked really hard to try to get around that. I wasn't going to put black marks in the book um, because that's just tough to read. And um, it's, it's no fun uh, for a reader to, to, to try to have kind of guess what we're talking about now. So that's why I ended up with um, undisclosed locations and things like that. Now you can, a lot of times you can kind of figure out what's going on, but uh well, for, I also have to protect it, uh, protect sources and methods, and that was, you know, as a requirement as a security officer, um, you know, that would be really uh, uh, hypocritical of me if I didn't. Yeah, no, that's understandable. Uh, for the people who are not familiar, or maybe haven't listened to the last podcast we did, do you want to tell us, you know, what's your book about? Um, my book is is a historical memoir of my twenty four year career in security, uh, but I was not a, a, um, a traditional security officer. I branched and mainly stayed into the protective side. I, I was uh, heavily involved in providing protection to agency personnel, facilities, and information in, in hostile areas. And I did it in a variety of ways. The stories, uh, the main story is about the, the, this protective unit called the protect, uh, Protective Operations Cadre, which was formed uh, back in 1991, uh, officially. And, uh, that, that entity remained, um, clandestine, you know, out of the public eye up until an event in, um, 
in Pakistan and then later on with the Benghazi right, uh, right. rescue. No. And um, the other parts of the book are my other roles doing protective work. Uh, when I was in the counterterrorism, I was um, protecting our case officers and other personnel by looking for and going after terrorists who were targeting our people. Yeah, it's a, like I said, it's a very unique view that I, I think you're the first person to ever write a book like this um, from the standpoint of, you know, running the protection detail for uh, for agency case officers. And um, the book really, like, as you said, it's a historical memoir. It really takes you through the history. Um, and I was actually reading the, the beginning of the book. It starts off with a pretty thorough account of uh, the assassination of Colonel Nick Rowe. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen it detailed um, quite so thoroughly before. Um, and that is, you kind of point out, really the catalyst of how the POC came about. Yes, that's that's exactly what happened. Um, it was a it was a watershed moment for um, for us. We 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 ended up in a situation where we're like, wow, our our people in an area they, they can't really operate. We need them to operate you know, in the traditional clandestine um, case officer role, uh, collecting in intelligence. So they had to scramble. And um, so we sent people out uh, to the Philippines. And, um, you know, as a lot of, a lot of um, events occur, you're, you're, you're caught up in the middle of it, and, you're, and later on you get a chance to look at it and go, hmm, we can do this better. So that's when they created uh, this protective operations cadre and started a training program and and made this um, uh, a part of the, of the security apparatus within the agency. And you talk a little bit about how you came into to work for the agency, and it was really just responding to a newspaper ad, right? Yes, yes. As crazy as that sounds, the Milwaukee Journal had an ad for. The, for the CIA in there, and uh, I was coaching wrestling and working at uh, uh, J.C. Penney's catalog warehouse. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> trying to find something to do, and I applied, and then um, they uh, they slotted me into security, which was a good fit, and um, and then things kind of picked up. And I was lucky because of my personality; I'm I'm more action oriented, and um, I was struggling with the with the the basics of, uh, of the security profession. Cause back then it was mainly personnel security, which is background investigations, clearance division, uh, clearance processing, you know, for people's, right. uh, top secret and secret clearances and a, and a lot of, of that type of work. And I, that wasn't really what I was suited for. So, um, luckily things really picked up. I was, a, uh, I came in at the right time to get onto the first training class for the, for the protective operations cadre. We call it the POC. And, um, and then things just picked up. I mean, I, I, my second job, I was at this in the security duty office, which is like the security watch center for all of our, uh, our, uh, agency fit, uh, facilities in the DC area. And that's when, um, uh, Miramal Khanzi, a Pakistani terrorist attacked the front gate and killed yes. several of our employees. And so that I got right into the terrorism aspect and that, uh, I got my, I, um, uh, my baptism in fire there, and then I uh, then I deployed to Somalia um, as a protective operations cadre member, and from that moment on, I was hooked. When you deployed to Mogadishu, I mean, it was before Task Force Ranger showed up, which was interesting. So you guys were kind of out there. I don't want to say out there flapping, but before there was any real visible American presence. Yes, yeah, so we were uh, we were out on the roads, and um, 
And uh, in fact, when Task Force Ranger came in, their first element, which is their administrative side, um, uh, they didn't have any logistical uh, components. So we ended up driving around uh, Colonel uh, uh, McKnight, who was the head of Task Force Ranger, and his, uh, his staff. Uh, we, used, we ended up having to drive them back and forth between the airport through the dangerous parts of the city into, into the um, university compound. And uh, I ended, uh, our unit actually got a, a, a thank you um, uh, memo from him, which I, I thought was really impressive considering that he, uh, he ended up having his hands full yeah. after we left. Yeah. And he's still able to remember to thank us and send us this, um, uh, this certificate. Uh, class act. What, what was it like operating in Mogadishu at that time? I mean, you had to presumably drive uh, a case officer around to meet with his assets. And I, I mean, I can, just from the stories I've heard about Mogadishu, I mean, it must have been a, a colorful experience, to say the least. Oh, it was surreal. It was Mad Max in, in Technicolor. <laughs> uh, between between the, the Somalis running around and all the UN troops and and let me give you a little flavor on the UN troop thing. Um, UN troops, a, a lot of um, are uh, developing countries. Like we had, well, Pakistanis, we had Malaysians, we even had some New Zealanders. Not that they're developing, but uh, there's there was this widespread of different nationalities and personalities uh, and capabilities running around in this all in this area, and the those who are working for the UN, those uh, foreign troops, they get pay, paid an extra amount of money. So this is a, this is a real It's a money-making money venture, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, so they're in a whole different mindset than our troops. U.S. troops don't get any extra UN money. So, um, so we've got all these characters running around with different capabilities, and some of them are out in the field, like the Italians were out in different checkpoints. Checkpoint and pasta. They had checkpoint pasta, a very famous one, and the Italians were involved in some really nefarious stuff. <laughs> uh, they were they were they were kind of colluding with the Adid um, because they, they, it was an Italian colony pre- previously, and they wanted back in. And uh, so we'd be driving on these roads, and we were relying on stealth. Um, we, we didn't have uh, armor, uh, with a few exceptions, and so we had to rely on speed um, and unpredictability and stealth. So we'd be running around on these roads, dodging buses filled to the brim with, with Somalis. And we're talking about no windows, and they're, they're all over the top of the bus also. And they're careening across the streets. And then you have wildlife. I mean, you have donkeys and camels and sheep and uh, chickens. And all. They're just running around. So you're dodging animals at the same time. And then, uh, and then of course, you've got technicals the, um, the the warlord uh, uh, troops running around with um, with uh, their trucks with uh, with heavy uh, machine guns on them and then we're trying to make it through checkpoints so it was it was challenging to say the least no never a dull moment and what was the story? I know you mentioned it in the book a little bit that there is a source who allegedly, uh, and it's mentioned in Black Hawk Down. I think also the source who allegedly uh, killed himself playing Russian roulette. Yes, he did. He, he um, it, it was one of our main assets. He was a, he was one of the lor- warlords, kind of on the minor side, but he was a main asset. Um, and uh, uh, he was he had he had a wife who was. A little suspect, and what happened was he, we got word that he had 
shot himself playing Russian roulette with his cronies. When, and well, he wasn't dead, and we got him into a hospital um, on the UN compound, and they didn't find what they normally would find with a with a head uh, a close contact head wound, like powder burns. Powder burns. Now we found out later when they did a, a, the the autopsy that that um, because of the type of hair he had, it it, it dissipated the the powder burns, but. We didn't know that at the time, and his wife wasn't exactly the grieving type. <laughs> she was taking over all the money that he had collected from the U.S. and other people. And so we ended up having to go to his compound um, and collect some equipment. And that was a pretty scary moment because we don't know whether somebody within his group uh, killed him. And we were, you know, we're inside the compound completely at their mercy. So it was Parker Factor completely. <laughs> wow. And there were also um, a few there, – there was a, another vehicle with agency personnel that went over what it went over a landmine and, and it killed a few yes. – or it killed one that guy. Was, yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, during the first deployment of the POC to Somalia. Um, there's an interesting story that goes with that. Um, the, okay. These were paramilitary guys. Um, one uh, – one of which, uh, his, his name is Larry Friedman. Yes, uh, he was on that movement, and um, they they were they were doing road reconnaissance for the military. They were they were an advanced element, and they ran over a landmine and and uh, detonated and killed him instantly, pretty much, and then wounded another guy. Uh, the POC responded, provided security at the site, and then um, uh, a. a, a, a a famous journalist showed up, and uh, there was an altercation. Oh, she, really? Yes, and she, uh, Christiane Amapour. Yeah, and she she basically ran off with the ambulance that were supposed to, the, the converted um, up uh, station wagon was supposed to haul uh, um, our wounded back to a hospital. So, and it, so she actually tried to have a physical altercation with these. Well, guys? she she basically stole them. She she wanted to follow the story, so she she commandeered the uh, station wagon. And, wow! Uh, yeah. Okay then. <laughs> so that that yeah that was that's a pretty pretty ugly moment. So we 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 were not really big big on the journalists from uh, from that moment on in in terms of Somalia coverage. No other the other guy who was hurt, I believe he was an army dude actually. Uh, yeah, it was it's probably a combined unit. Yeah. Uh, I know Larry was uh, was the main. Uh, paramilitary officer and his he, it was only later that he was acknowledged for that yeah uh, yeah and, and Larry was a, a plank owner of Delta Force it should be mentioned I mean he's a, yes. he's a, he was a living legend in a lot of ways yep he was on um, Desert One yeah so yeah and he was uh, he, he was definitely a character and you also write in the book um, I I'm sorry if I missed it. Uh, did you have your uh, your case officer get shot, or was it one of the other POC members? Was that was actually the the, the deputy chief. Ah, shit. And uh, yeah, um, it was. Uh, this is one of the one of the dangers, and part of the book I wanted to focus on on the difficulties, the real life difficulties of running protection details. Your clients um, in the private sector, it's clients in the in the government, it's your bosses. Um, Sometimes they don't want to listen to you. They they have their own agenda, and it gets to be 
uh, a dangerous moment when when you are telling them that this is really not a good idea, and they decide they're going to have to go. You know, they're going they're going to push through anyways, and you're kind of stuck in a situation where you, you, in some cases, you can't say no. And in this case, we tried desperately to talk him out of going on that route because um, what happened was Adi was targeting us uh, very heavily. He, he was a former asset, and he knew our operations. He knew our, our TTPs, our tactics, techniques, and procedures. And so he was hunting us. He had guys looking out for us, and they, uh, like as he was, time went on. Like he, he was looking to kill you is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. They, later on, we found out they had a, a, a reward out for each of our heads. They had physical descriptions Holy of three shit. of our team. They had uh, the vehicles all picked out except for one of them. Um, that we pulled in at the last minute. And um, uh, so he was tracking us, and we were we were changing routes and times um, just for, uh, frantically to keep out of his uh, range. And it was working very well. But then at one point we got word that, that they had mined one of our main routes up to North Moog. So we were stuck with one route uh, at the time. And normally what, what happens is then we'll develop new routes. But we didn't have time to do that. And so we were stuck with one route. And we told uh, the deputy that this is not a good idea because if you go up and down, you know, up that route to North Moog and then back down the same way, you're really putting yourself in danger. And he, he insisted. So we ended up taking a, a route we had never taken before, not at least for six months. And we ended up doing a, a, a Blackhawk overflight of the route to check it out. But it was still really dicey because um, uh, if you get off that main road, it's a rabbit warren. There's, there are no maps. And this is something that the, um, the Rangers and Delta Force found out in, in, in the battle for Mogadishu. That once you get off the main pass, um, there are no street signs. And, uh, and at that time, you know, GPS wasn't really a big thing. So you're stuck. And so um, we ended up taking that route. But what we ended up running into was an, uh, the remnant of an attack that had happened earlier in the morning on a Nigerian outpost. And so we, we kind of walked, uh, drove right into uh, the remnants of that. And if we wouldn't have, uh, yeah, the driver in the car, uh, one of my comrades, uh, Bill Stone, if he hadn't whipped that Yui and got us uh, turned in the other direction quick enough, we would have, um, we, I wouldn't be here to tell you the story because we took uh, quite a few rounds. And unfortunately, the deputy who was in the backseat got hit mm. um, and, and nearly severed his uh, subclavial um, artery it's near his neck we were able to get him back to a hospital and they did uh, emergency surgery and they uh, saved his life and so it was a, a pretty pretty scary moment super sketchy yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and then in the book, you also talk about deploying to Bosnia and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because I don't think we got into that at all last time yeah, um, the the other part of the, the the you know the other part of the book that you know why it's it's a historical memoir is it, upon retrospect I, I realized that my career kind of um, uh, well it, it was on the the same road that the U.S. was on in terms yep. of so many different conflicts I was in uh, pretty much every major conflict from '93 on until 2013 I hit them all all, all the ones that the military were in and even some that they weren't. But there were major events for for the U.S. and um, Somalia is one example in in two areas. One, uh, Somalia was the first time we end up 
really in combat, you could say, with some of uh, Osama bin Laden's troops. Yeah. This, and the, but the other side of that was, uh, which had an impact on Bosnia, was this was um, this was a real learning moment. Somalia was a real learning moment for the U.S. military when it came to humanitarian aid and the policing action. And it, what happened in in Black Hawk Down, really colored what we did in Bosnia, changed the the way we operated. And General Nash, who was in charge of the troops, um, who was based out of Tuzla. Uh, he really wasn't going to take any of the chances that he saw we took in Somalia. They didn't so want he, to repeat you know, that. Say again? They didn't want to repeat that experience from the, nope. you know, the Battle of the Black Sea. That's it. He, he basically said, if, if two is good, I'm sending ten. And um, I think I, my, my personal opinion, having spent about 50 days in, in Tuzla at the beginning of this, of this kind of conflict— um, I think he really uh, forced the, the, the bad guys to take a second look at uh, whether they wanted to tangle with us. The other part he was worried about was the terrorists, you know, the, 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 non, the, the traditional non-combatant types. He was really worried about the terrorist groups that were hiding among the um, NGOs and non-government organizations. So he, he asked for um, uh, some help with the terrorist threat. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the, he, um, uh, he was advised that there was a unit uh, in, the, in the CIA that uh, specifically would go and look for terrorist signatures and provide uh, um, uh, basically would uh, become a force protection um, in the military, the term. But at the time, that wasn't really a term in the military. And we were doing, uh, so we were sent in to uh, basically look for terrorist signature, terrorist threat, terrorist surveillance on his troops and his base in Tuzla. Did you find anything? Oh, yes. Yes, we saw lots of very suspicious activity. Because um, the military, had, you know, they, they operated, especially back then, you know, we, uh, we were extremely well-equipped military, and we went in in force. But their, their outlook was strictly looking for um, traditional combatants, not right. non-traditional. So. When they would go out on patrols, they weren't looking for the type of signature that we were looking for. Um, they weren't looking for the passive surveillance. They weren't looking at their routes from the point of view of how can we set a, uh, you know, a bad guy set up a car bomb. Um, like for, I'll give you one example. They, they had an entryway into their base, that, and they allowed locals to park. So it was like a funnel. And every time their troops would come driving or walking through that area, they were surrounded with cars that were not checked so we we advised them that 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 configuration was dangerous to their health and they immediately made changes and then some of their routes they were very doing some very predictable routes through the mountains between tuzla base and the city of tuzla so we started to um uh watch certain choke points and we started to notice that um there were uh, unusual activities by certain entities that's, uh, that coincided with the movements of U.S. troops. Can, can you say who some of the more non-traditional threats were that maybe uh, the average Joe isn't aware of? I mean, I think we're all aware there's conflicts with the Serbs, Albanians, and so forth, but you're saying there's more uh, unconventional or terrorist threats as well? Yes. Uh, in, among some of the NGO elements, like Red Crescent, um, they had a history of, of being infiltrated by Hezbollah and um, Hamas. So you had these 
these elements running around under the cover of of, of uh, aid workers, but yeah, they're collecting and um, they're providing logistical support to um, other elements that were doing nefarious things. So we would see these these kind of behaviors. Uh, did at the time when I was there, we never they never actually picked up anybody. We were in a very defensive mode. In other words, if we saw something, we told them we waved them off, and then they would come in and harden that site. So we were we were basically pushing them off the board, making it very difficult for them to operate. Interesting. Uh, and was there what else uh, was going on in Bosnia? I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to this oh, part of the book yet. Well, in, in Bosnia, we were we went in and. In, in true covert fashion, we were we were uh, the team was nicknamed the uh, the ethnic team. I, I was working with a Moldavian Russian and a Czech, <laughs> and um, they spoke Serbo Croat and Russian, and I was the the mute. I, I didn't speak uh, any of those languages, so I basically when we're out and about, I didn't say anything. <laughs> but we, uh, I had a full beard, and um, we well before we went into. Uh, uh, Bosnia, we got briefed on the mission, and it was like, oh, we are, this REI equipment's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> not if we're going to go run around as, as locals, or at least um, people from the region. So we ended up, uh, uh, before we went in, in split Croatia, and we uh, went to a local a used clothing market, and we bought all used clothing, which was a painful um, thing to do because we went into a really harsh winter in Tuzla and um, Tuzla had been under siege for, for, the, for two years. So these, the people in Tuzla did not have winter boots. They didn't have gloves. They didn't have hats. Um, so there we were, I was running around in kind of beat up old uh, dress shoes in the slush. I was layered like a, like a little Eskimo. <laughs> and um, so, it, it, and, and we ended up staying in some pretty rough locations. I mean, no, I didn't get clothes washed for almost um, almost two and a half weeks. I didn't get a shower for about the same. Um, contrary to popular belief, you can smell yourself. It's not nice. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, we we basically operated like locals, and um, uh, it, w- it was interesting. It was a very depressing place to be. Uh, the 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 Tuzlans were. Uh, really in rough psychological shape. About fifty percent of the people in the hospitals were there for um, uh, stress-related mental health conditions. Wow! You never saw a smile. You never heard a laugh. Uh, or just, if you did, it was a foreigner. It was a it was press or or some other unit. It was never the locals. Because they just been traumatized by the war. Yeah, and they 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 fully believe that that the war was going to continue and it was just going to get worse. Jeez. Uh, you also talk in the book about deploying to uh, Khartoum and, oh, and working yep. with uh, Kofor Black and Billy Wall a little bit. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the unit that I, that I was doing this um, counterterrorism activity, uh, that we call it the counterterrorism unit, um, it's, it's never been mentioned in the press with the exception of Billy Wall's book, uh, which was not <laughs> – passed through the publication review board uh called uh, hunting the jackal yeah yeah and i arrived in uh, khartoum after uh billy had uh identified and photographed um carlos the jackal he basically unmasked him he had been living in uh, and hanging out in in khartoum for for several years and uh 
masquerading as a Greek merchant and uh, with a bodyguard. And, um, so I, I got a chance to work with the living legend Billy, Billy Waugh on several occasions. Uh, um, it, it, it was like, uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The guy had been everywhere, done everything. And uh, fascinating environment to work. Uh, uh, austere, to say the least. Um, full of all kinds of bad things that could happen to you, both both uh, in terms of your health, uh, uh, from disease and bad water, to um, to every terrorist group you can imagine running around. This was their uh, the terrorist R and R location, and sometimes they got bored and decided that they would want to they want to play with the Americans. Um, and the only thing that was keeping them really from from going full on on us was the was the threat that the U.S. government was was um, putting uh, to the uh, Sudanese leadership, basically saying don't. Don't allow these guys to to mess with our people. But there were there were quite a few occasions where they they pushed the envelope. We did we thought at one point that they were going full on. They were they were targeting us. They were starting to do dry runs of attacks, and uh, we were not in a position. There was no protection detail out there. We were running around without armor. We we were, we, we had pistols. It was uh, it, it was it was some pretty scary moments. Yeah, I imagine. Um, and I, reading Billy's book too, you get the impression that everyone knew something really bad was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it was just a matter of time, and everybody was there. Uh, as Bob, Hamas, uh, Abu Nidal, uh, Osama bin Laden, but he wasn't a big player at the time. These other uh, the units were much bigger players. Abu Nidal was kind of fading in into the woodwork, but. Um, uh, but we, we were definitely facing um, a hostile environment and um, uh, trying to track these guys and watch their movements and see who they see and, um, you know, trying to, to, to determine, you know, what what, what they're going to possibly do once they, they come off their vacation. So it was fascinating work. And there's also a, uh, a picture in the book that I, I was – Funny to see. Uh, you're in uh, Zamboanga, uh, which I was there, what, two years ago now? Oh, and yeah. got to meet with uh, General Saban uh, and some of the other guys who had uh, worked uh, with the agency. As he told me pretty openly about ha- you know, sitting in his uh, kitchen planning um, you know, rescue missions for the, the Burnhams, the, the missionaries oh, who were yeah. captured, yep. and, uh, and also to assassinate, well, maybe I shouldn't use that word, but uh, to capture, kill, um, uh, what was the name of the big terrorist at the time? He was the spokesperson for... Abu uh, Sabaya? Yes, Sabaya, and they got him at we got, sea. We got him, yeah. Yeah, that was a, a fascinating time. After after I finished um, uh, uh, my uh, senior... Uh, I was a senior team leader with, with the PAC up until uh, 2001. When I changed, uh, I found um, this position out in Asia uh, as, a, as a, the security officer, basically the security chief for that region. And so I went out to Asia, and I um, came in just in time to to work uh, extensively on the, the Burnham kidnapping case. Mm-hmm. This was a case of uh, of a bunch of Americans at a at a dive resort in Palawan, yes, uh, Philippines. And these terrorists, uh, uh, Abu, uh, Abu Sabaya and his group, uh, the Abu uh, AFG, ASG, pardon me, uh, they they came out of the southern area, uh, took their boats up, kidnapped these people, and took them down uh, into their jungle lair, 
And it was this was a major big deal for the U.S. Yeah. to try to get these guys back and to uh, to go after the ASG. And uh, so I, I was uh, down in Zambon a lot, helped build the base that we had down there, supporting all the military elements. We yeah. had special forces, SEALs, you name it. Okay, can I just interject that this picture in particular really caught my eye because I have been to many campgrounds of America uh, when I was on this like teen <laughs> tour back in the day, we went to you meet so many characters there. And I never knew that there were campgrounds of America in the southern Philippines. <laughs> Obviously, assume there that are, an American. There are, that was a joke. We had that sign made up because we had a, a large um, gr- a number of trailers for our air element and our and. So somebody said, boy, this is just like Campgrounds of America. So we had the sign made up. <laughs> yeah, you met, like, I don't know if you've had the same experience. Because, like, I was on this teen tour. I was probably, I don't know, like 17 or something. And, you know, so we went to Campgrounds of America all throughout the U.S. Because we basically were on a bus from, like, New York all the way to Florida one year. New York all the way to California. So we were at Campgrounds of America in, like, South Dakota, in Utah. And you meet some weird characters because, like, they're just, like, you know, there were great people there. And then there are people in trailer parks who kind of fit that stereotype. And you met mm. some really <laughs> odd characters. I, they're just from what I remember of my experience. Well, we had the same odd characters in our, yeah. in our campground, too. You I, name it. We had, a, we had a lot of different types. I will uh, always remember hours. this one. I, mean, I know I'm going way off topic, but just the campgrounds of America remind me. I will always remember this weird story of us trying to make small talk with this guy in Utah. And um, we were like, oh, are you a fan of the Utah Jazz? And the, and this is a guy we literally just met. And, uh, like, I'm not going to repeat it, but the guy was literally like, I'm not, I'm not interested in watching a bunch of N-words, like, throw around <laughs> a ball. And we were like, wow. Like, it was just the most blatant racism <laughs> I ever saw in my life. And then I remember hearing – I've told people this story, and I remember hearing just recently – about these players in the Utah Jazz being harassed by fans in the stands of them, like, chanting N-word and all this stuff. And a friend of mine was like, I'm sure you're not surprised by this story. And, like, the owner came out and was like, we are not a racist organization. And I saw p- former players on ESPN be like, yeah, when we played certain states, like, that was just the norm. Like, you heard this type of stuff. And it was, uh, to be honest, just as someone who grew up in New York, it was really eye-opening to me because, it's like, racism exists everywhere but it's never that blatant it's never like in the context of hey how are you doing and someone throws out you know like a racial slur ian you're right that's pretty off topic yeah oh extremely (laughs) off topic but campgrounds of america it was uh i don't know it's like a landmark of uh of how many years ago in my life probably a good uh you know, 20 years, uh, 15 years at this point. It's I, crazy. um, I, I did not realize that you were involved in the, in the Burnham incident. And I, I was wondering if you can talk to us, involved. if you yes. can talk to us about that, because having talked to general Saban and talking to some of the, the LRR had just been stood up at oh. the time by the special, but U S special forces had helped with that. Um, that's a very, very interesting time. And this is just as the, the global war on terror is starting to kick into high a- gear. Absolutely. Um, what, a, that's it. The other part of this, the book, talks kind of gives a view that most uh, americans and other people even from europe don't understand that how uh, how much terrorism uh affected the asia and its implications um across the globe so the, the abu sabaya group uh with the asg that they kidnapped the, the burnhams were also in 
um, contact with uh, Osama bin Laden's group. And uh, they were also working with um, elements from uh, a major terrorist group from Indonesia called Jamia Islamiyah. J.I. J.I. And, like, for example, a little background. Uh, in 2000, I was coming back from a dive trip in the, southern, in the Philippines, and we had to um, divert around Manila because five bombs went off in the city in one day. Yes. And uh, they called the Rizalde bombings. It was on the 30th of December, 2000. And there was a J.I. operative who did those bombings. He, he was the guy. And later on, he resurfaces in, the, in, the, uh, in a plot to, to, to go after the U.S. Embassy in Singapore. And uh, the backup plan was to bomb the U.S. Embassy in Manila. And all this stuff is swirling. And then, of course, 9-11 happens when I'm there. So it, it's, we are so deep into the terrorist, um, uh, I mean, historical bowels. Because um, the guy who developed the plan to use aircraft, um, Ramsey Youssef, was, uh, was working and, and hiding out in the Philippines. And what happened was he, he lit his own apartment on fire and he <laughs> yeah. had to flee. And, and then when they did the investigation, they found his fingerprint and they found out, you know, what he's working on. So there, uh, there are a lot of terrorist uh, nexus stuff that happens in, happened in the Philippines that were um, one, one of the most dangerous guys outside of the Middle East for um, the, the uh, Osama bin Laden's group, you know, uh, was a guy named Hambali. And he was the architect behind the Singapore plot. He was going to, he actually surveilled the U.S. Embassy in Manila. Um, he was involved in all kinds of stuff. And he was a major player uh, in, in the terrorist uh, infrastructure. So a lot of things happened in the Philippines. But during the, the, the Burnham things, um, these guys were, were getting a lot of press. They, they, they had these hostages. They were, they were holding them for ransom. And... The U.S. got involved, but uh, the Philippine leadership did not want us to have an active role. Uh, we had to do support, training, some guidance, but there were limits to what we could do, and um, including intelligence, because if we provided certain types of intelligence and people were killed, that that requires what we call a lethal finding. Right. And um, quite frankly, uh, if we would were allowed to to throw off the uh, the leash, we would have uh, ended that conflict much quicker. I talked to, well, General Saban told me that the case officers, the first, first plan they came up with for Sabaya was to deliver, have delivered to him uh, a, a, a satellite phone. And he said they came to him and it was like one of these big satellite, like trifold, you know, radar <laughs> dish things. Yep. And, and he was like, He's like, man, if I if we give this to him, he's going to know exactly where it came from. Like to them, a, a, a satellite phone is a Thuraya. So they they did the Thuraya, but that didn't work. And uh, it was interesting. I got to talk to some of the NAVSOG guys, the Philippine SEALs. Mm. And this was what, like two years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. I was over uh, there. I'm good friends with uh, with the commander of uh, all uh, naval special warfare for, for the Philippines. The bullfrog? He was down there during that event. I've known him ever since. You're yeah. talking about uh, Ben? No, Val. Oh no, I don't know him. There, there. He's the uh, he's the commander of uh, of um, uh, of the, of the Na- you know, naval special warfare. 
for the Filipino. One of the former bullfrogs is uh, he's here in the city in New York. He, he works for the UN oh. right now. Um, really good guy. He was he was the bullfrog when Zamboanga happened. The Zamboanga okay, so, siege. Yeah, uh, Bao was a was a young young tadpole at that time. Ah, okay, okay. And you know who was down there with him? I've, and I've got a picture of that. It's, in, um, in, in Zambo? Kyle. Yeah. I'm going to call BS uh, on that one. If, if Chris Kyle, if, or somebody's claiming that Chris Kyle was there, this is the first I'm ever hearing about this. Oh, the seals. I, I, I'll, uh, I'll send you a picture. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You'll see that he'll steal his, his profile. And uh, the, 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 the seals were very active uh, down in Zamboanga, training the, uh, the Philippine seals. During the Zamboanga siege? Uh, not, not the Zamboanga siege, during during the Burnhams. Oh, during the, okay, okay, I got you. Uh, yeah, so like 2001, 2002. Yes, yes, that period. Yeah, no, this, the American SEALs are still down there. Uh, I ran into them on the on the NAVSOG compound, and yeah. they, they do really good work. I mean, all of them do. The MARSOC guys, the, the Green Berets down there, they all do really oh, yeah. good liaison work um, and training and everything else. But anyway, back to the Burnhams. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it, I got to talk to one of the um, NAVSOG uh, SEALs, Philippine SEALs, and, mm-hmm. uh, and between him and Saban, I was able to kind of piece together the whole, the whole story. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. There's some things they'll tell you on the record and some things off the record, but oh, yeah. uh, a very interesting story about how they, you know, the, how they bugged the boat and they, they ended up deciding to interdict him at sea because they're like, well, he'll finally have nowhere to run to. <laughs> No comment. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I spent a little time on the, down there in the ocean uh, on a boat in the middle of the night. <laughs> oh, you too? Because yeah. there were two American, I was to, told two dev group seals on one of the boats when they interdicted him, and they were both kind of like uh, taken aback by how <laughs> some of that went down. Uh, it was an interesting moment. Yeah, I mean, he was cut in half. Uh, Busabai was cut in half with a fifth with a 50 and he just sunk, which we didn't get the body. And then for a while, the Busab tried to push it like, like he's still alive. But we had, we had his signature sunglasses and his phone. And so it's like, no. Yeah. Uh, no, the, it, it was all very, like it went down by the numbers in a lot of ways, but then they, they also told me like, Oh yeah, he was treading water, shooting his AK 47 at us in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night. And I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, not. Okay, man. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then uh, one, was... and, and then one of them, allegedly one of the Philippine officers has Sabaya's 1911 as a trophy. I'm like, huh? So you're saying he sunk to the bottom of the ocean, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you have his pistol. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's a, it, the stories abound uh, <laughs> as, as things kind of, you know, because everybody wants to be involved. Yeah, in that yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I hear you. I mean, everybody, let me tell you, even the U.S., everybody wanted to be involved in that case, including the FBI. Yeah. Well, um, can you tell us about how, how things went down with the Burnhams, though? And, and I don't know how deeply you can get into it, but you're, well, you're uh, I can that. say this, and I, and I, am, I have a lot of friends in the, in the Philippine military. Uh, I have a lot of uh, Filipino friends. I spend a lot of time in the Philippines, um, even now. And, uh, but uh, the truth is that they, they stumbled on the Burnhams. <laughs> they, were, uh, we, they just... Um, uh, the unit that that actually got into a, a battle with the uh, 
the ASG element that had the Burnhams kind of stum- just stumbled across them. And then they, 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 you know, went it went into free fire mode and, um, um, Grace made it. She got shot, but her husband died. Yeah. And, um, that was just a matter of bad luck. Um, it really wasn't like a, a rescue operation. It was just, uh, they stumbled on them. There was one, and I, I believe it was one of the LRRs, the, the Light Reaction Regiment. Mm-hmm. I believe it was one of their first ever operations, live operations, was a, an attempted rescue mission. Um, and I think they missed them entirely, that they, they had been moved. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, there was, a, there was a lot of a big push to try to get the Filipinos uh, the, the, um, the top-grade uh, night vision. Mm-hmm. But that, that's not uh, allowed. Um, export. Uh, oh, it was an ITARS issue. Yes. Yeah. And so the Philippines weren't really keen on operating at night. Understandably. Yeah. 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 Where our units were very happy to work at night. So there, we missed some opportunities there. But that's, you know, that was a political thing with uh, the president of the Philippines at the time. We, Later on, she changed her tune and, and, um, we really took the uh, ASG down a, a few notches, just just above uh, obliterated. <laughs> now the current president there is quite a character. I, lo- I oh. love talking to our uh, web guy in the Philippines about Duterte. Oh yes, he is. Uh, he's unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every few months, he makes a statement that is just like uh, I, I love uh, just seeing the things that come out of that guy's mouth. It's uh, going to it, war with Canada. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh, what I found interesting over there. Um, so this was a couple of years back, and I think things were a little bit even more intense than now um, between Duterte and Trump. Um, like two fairly bombastic characters. Yeah. Um, but what I found was interesting is that the, the military to military relationship between us and the Philippines was still very strong. Uh, and, and when you start looking at it, you're like, okay, this relationship goes back like a hundred years. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even know this when I got there. I'm I'm sure you've, you saw it, uh, Tom, the, uh, American cemetery in Manila. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It it really is. All the American GIs who were killed in the Philippines and the Filipinos and the Filipino forces. Yes. I mean, you, you, that's, that's our real bond right there. Yeah. The, the, we, we fought and died together. And that, that is cemetery is, um, there's only one that comes close to that. And that would be, um, Normandy. Yeah. Uh, that's it. Those are the two most beautiful, um, veteran cemeteries, uh, in the world. And the U S still, um, maintains that. Yeah, by the way, the things you're saying about Duterte, the interesting thing is from the discussions I've had with Chris and, you know, who we know in the Philippines, Duterte is almost looked at uh, rightfully or wrongfully by the people of the Philippines the way we look at Trump as he's an outsider, he's going to get things done, he's not political royalty, and and that's kind of why he's um, beloved there by a lot of people. It's... Well, it, it, it's a it's a class issue also uh, that the you have an elite in the Philippines, much like our, our media elite. They don't like Trump very much. But in the mm. Philippines, it's kind of the same in that you have an elite and they live in they literally live inside walled compounds and they do not like Duterte. But the, you have a, a, another class of people, a working class of people, the woman who has to worry about being raped every time she walks from the bus stop to home on the way home from work. And she is much more liable to support Duterte because he talks about, you know, killing criminals and stuff like that. Yep. So it resonates with with a, a lower class of people. And I, I don't mean that they're lower people, but 
that they, they have to live Lower on the streets. Academic state, states, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they're they're struggling with a with a with a severe poverty issue and, and drugs. But, um, yeah. and, and by the way, not only yeah. does he talk about killing drug lords, but he's he's talked about killing drug addicts. Like and he's, and that that kind of talk um, impacts our relationship because uh, Rubio and a, a Democratic uh, Congresswoman, also maybe it was Feinstein, I can't remember, but they blocked arms shipments to the Philippines to the, or the special yes. operations. And it's, and it's not them. It's it's an actual yes. uh, uh, U.S. policy, and it, this was in a, this had an effect when I was in the Philippines, um, because basically, extrajudicial killing—that's what they, the technical term for, yeah. for for that kind of stuff—is frowned upon. Uh, I'm using that term loosely um, by the U.S. government and any elements of a foreign government that we are liaison with, if they're found to have been involved in extrajudicial killings. There's a there's kind of a halt process on all funding, and what happened with the Philippine police? Um, I was there for uh, uh, President Bush's visit to the Philippines, and I know, I'm sorry because I I know how your career is spent. So is that President yep. Bush senior or junior? Junior. Okay. And this is um, I think it was 2003. Uh, this this guy that I told you about this uh, J.I. bomber. He got loose. We captured him. He got loose from the Filipinos, and he was running around. And this was a major concern to us because we got a president coming in. And then just before the president arrives, the, the police chief tells the ambassador that, yeah, you don't have to worry about that guy anymore. And just like out of a scene like <laughs> Casablanca, he says, well, oh, we're doing the paperwork now. We don't know whether he uh, – uh, Committed suicide or died while trying to escape. <laughs> he mysteriously <laughs> sunk beneath the waves. Oh, this was so bad because at the time, you know, we can't. It went all the way back to the, the to D.C. where they had to look at this and go, can we really hold back from our support to the Philippine National Police? And they realized they couldn't. But they, that was a serious concern because that was an extrajudicial killing. What uh, I, I find disconcerting, and I, I mean, I believe that, you know, we, we should, uh, some of our foreign support should be contingent on human rights, of course. We don't want to arm bad guys. Um, the, the, that's why the Leahy Amendment exists. But at the same time, what happens is you have police units committing these EJKs, but the special operations guys that we work with, the LRR, NAVSOG, mm-hmm. um, uh, scout rangers they're doing the they're doing the right thing and unfortunately the stuff that some of the police do and some of the bombastic statements that duterte makes it ends up impacting these special operations units that are doing the right thing and we can't get them the weapons and the night vision they need because of uh, because of this kind of stuff and um you're correct yeah you're absolutely right and that's unfortunate yes because they they need the help and um, one of the big concerns, I just wrote an article uh, or in the process of writing an article for uh, a news uh, agency about the, the terrorist threat in, um, down in the Mindanao. Because there's, a, there's an, a very large population of, uh, of Americans in the Philippines, and quite a few of them are down in, in Mindanao, the southern part. And the, the, the scary part is, is ISIL. And if just like the JI was a major threat, coming out of Indonesia, the, J, the uh, ISIL elements coming up through Indonesia, wanting to establish uh, a caliphate down there, um, it has implications, serious implications for a lot of American lives. So uh, this is being monitored very closely. And um, 
I, I worked um, a parallel of this is I worked uh, doing training protection details all over the world, especially in South America. And I trained a lot of uh, the Colombian presidential detail. And at one point during the 90s, um, the FARC had taken over more than half of Colombia. And at that point, the U.S. government decided that this was too dangerous to that, you know, the chances of them taking over more of the country and possibly taking it over completely was an untenable situation. And so they brought in a lot more special forces uh, support and we were able to, to, to really squish the, um, the FARC. So you may see something like that happen in the future in other locations because we can't allow that, that, that type of loss of a country to, to a terrorist element. Or a narco-terrorist element. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when uh, Pablo Escobar brought down that jetliner, it was like, okay, enough is enough. Yeah. Like, enough screwing around down there, pal. <laughs> oh, he was... Uh, I worked with so many people. They all knew people who were killed by Pablo Escobar. One of the one of the protection detail guys, we were at a, uh, at a, uh, a picnic kind of thing at the end of the course, and he brought his son over, and his son had a nice, nasty scar across his face. From where Pablo tried to to roll a bomb-filled bus into the DAS, which is um, that's their FBI, but the bad part is this, attached to the FBI building was a daycare center. Oh, in and, Oklahoma City. Yeah, so it was a horrific situation, and there were a lot of people who wanted that guy taken off the planet. Wow. Yeah, he he went he went around the bend. So. Unreal. Well, as you say, Tom, I mean, your book, uh, because your career kind of follows along, you know, all of these contemporary conflicts, you know, since the the end of the Cold War, America's adventures around the world, and, the, and then the global war on terror kicking off. And uh, I could sit here and talk to you about like the Philippines and Colombian stuff all day and just like, a- ask you probing questions, you know, half of which you probably can't answer. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I think this stuff is fascinating. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, the readers will, will find that you know it's they get a they get a little bit more of the background on why these things are uh, are important, you know, and how this has impacted our our policies and our um, our behavior, you know, in terms uh, of the our U.S. military and our and our policies. And Absolutely. we haven't really gotten into it. I mean, I guess people just have to go and read the book. But of course, you spent a lot of time in in Pakistan and Iraq uh, as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, Pakistan was a trip. That was uh, we we pretty much knew Bin Laden was running around there somewhere. <laughs> Pakistanis have not been a um, uh, an ally to us in a long, long time. And uh, anybody says different is doesn't understand the real the reality of the world. Yeah. Well, the book once again is out now. It's Guardian: Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror, out on Post Hill Press. And as you heard, a lot of great stories in this book, especially as we discussed in the last episode, the early years of protective operations cadre, which a lot of people mistakenly think 
is something that came about closer to, you know, the war on terror. And this goes more into the origins of that and you being there in the early years. And it's a book that people really have to pick up if they want to know their, their history and uh, what really has gone down in the CIA and, and intelligence in general. And, and just another segue into that for people who, as Tom brought up, the, the GRS program had a lot of light put on it because of Benghazi. And people started asking, well, who are these guys? Who yeah. are these former SEALs that are working protective details? And I, I think Tom's book is going to answer those questions for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. I mean, anything else you want to get out there besides, of course, the book, obviously? Well, I'm, I'm doing my first book signing next week at uh, the, uh, um, the Safe House, which is a spy restaurant chain that's uh, based in Milwaukee but has a, uh, nice. a sister one in Chicago. So that'll be fun. And um, I'll be putting out uh, – I just put out a video on uh, YouTube. It's a, it's a video slideshow of uh, photos cool. from the book in color. Cool. Cool. And um, so if people are interested in, in taking a look at, uh, at that, they get a good idea what, what's in the book. Awesome. Yeah. We, Thanks so we much for doing that. this again. Oh, I appreciate it. You guys having me on your show. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime, Tom, because I know we're just kind of like scratching the surface. Uh, I'd like to do that. That'd be great. <laughs> Absolutely. And good luck with the book. And, um, you know, feel free to reach out to us anytime. Uh, thanks. I'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Talk Take to you care. Soon. Great having Thomas back on. Uh, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash 1 Crate, the Pro Crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our premium crate. These are all available at crateclub.us, and right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all Soft Rep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on it right now. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Jack Murphy, of course, who's right next to me, and the many guest writers who pop in as well. Unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. You'll get invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is, of course, softrepradio.com, where you can see that full archive of shows. Um, you know, shows like The Last Thomas Pecora, those are up everywhere. But like back way back, episode 88 with Michael Behenna, that is only available on our archive. So that's softrepradio.com, and you can see all that. Um, as always, keep up with us at Soft Rep Radio as well on everything, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
Anything else, man? No, that's it. I mean, that was a super wide ranging oh, interview yeah. because uh, Tom was in the agency for so long and he got deployed to all the hot zones. Yep. So I got to cover it. I mean, that's some really interesting stuff. Um, He's done it all. All I'd say, uh, you know, I have my own book out too. Murphy's Law is Never out heard there. Of it. I know I keep plugging it. <laughs> no, please I do. Will, uh, it's a great book. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. I, I'm enjoying it. Um, so go check it out. Uh, you know, the audio book is out, the ebook. I, I narrate the audio book if you're interested in that. Um, the hardcover is out. So whichever format you want, it's yeah. there. We're not going to cover the, uh, the Met Gala. Met Gala? What, oh, the yeah, hell? Oh, right. what happened? Even, no, it's just that's, that's what's been all over Twitter all day and all night. It's just what everybody's wearing. You haven't seen all this? No. Katy Perry wearing a fucking chandelier and, you know, Kim Kardashian. and uh, No, no. I, I don't know about this stuff, and I'm a better man for not knowing. You you, know, it, it, you're on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's, not, it was, it's been nonstop, uh, you know, what's been going on there. And it's just who could wear the most outrageous thing and basically... You know these people who need more attention than than anyone in the world. I don't know why we give it to them. Well, I'm I'm giving it to them right now. No, I, but I, I feel like that's the only thing being covered. So I'm actually glad we're not doing a show <laughs> on that. Um, yeah, I, I'll plug myself. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Scotto, Facebook.com/slash Ian Scotto Radio. A lot of people are asking. Uh, what I'm up to after I end, you know, my run with the shows at the end of this month and move on to other things. I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I still do a lot of freelance voiceover and I've been doing a lot of that stuff. So, I mean, if you own a company and you want me to do voiceover, I'm always open to that. You could always contact me. Um, I, I may do work with Jack in the future. We don't really know, but right now I'm doing that. Um, and just some other things. So, it, you know, if there's anything on the horizon, I'll be sure to let you guys know. I know you're going to turn around and write like a tell-all book, like <laughs> Jack Murphy, The Real Story. I'd have to write about everybody. I'd have to write about you guys, about like working with David Webb, working <laughs> with Senator Bill Bradley. Here's I, what Jack wrote in his book. Here's work, what you don't know. <laughs> working with uh, D. Snyder. There'd be a lot of uh, interesting stories, but I wouldn't do it. There's a lot of, there's people who have, and then they never work in the radio industry again. They write like a self-published tell book that, you know, their family reads. <laughs> and then I, cause I've seen it happen. And then people are like, fuck you, man. You wrote shit in there that, you know, we were, that was personal. Like I know a guy who worked on, I won't say uh, the name of the radio personality, but like, he was going through a crazy divorce at the time. His kids were running around the studio, and he wrote that in his like little tell-all book that didn't go anywhere. And the guy's like, "Dude, I don't need the public to know." I was like going through a divorce. Yeah. My kids are running around. Yeah, the that's kind of fucked up. Yeah, because and, and plus, why? What, what's juicy about that anyway? Because, because it, it's it's personal, not professional. Yeah, you know, it, it's like one thing to criticize a person on a professional level, you yeah. know, and another thing to like, you know, take a cheap shot at somebody because they're going through a divorce. Yeah, it's fucking stupid, man. Um, so yeah, I mean, the main thing I'm going to be doing, uh, after my run of the shows, like immediately after is I'm going to be going hard at work with voiceover. So like I said, if you own any type of company and you're doing radio ads, TV ads, you want me to voice them very reasonable with that. So yeah, uh, at Ian Scotto and, uh, I'll keep you up to date with if I'm up to anything after this, but, uh, Jack is still here. I know a, a job for you. <laughs> To let me know after uh, I hit the stop button. They, uh, I, I went to school with a guy. He uh, had a job working as like a personal trainer at a gym, which and I'd like to do as well. One, one of the guys, one, one of his clients was a male gigolo. <laughs> so this is what you're giving to me. This, is, this is what I'm giving. This is what I'm giving you. This is what I think. So this dude serviced Upper East Side wives. That was his whole job here in Manhattan. 
Upper East Side Wives. And the deal was two Viagras, four clients a night. Serious. So this is what I should move on. This to. is what you should do, bro. It's funny that you mentioned personal trainer, though, because I that's male gigolo. Something I I told you, um, Ian Scotto, male <laughs> prostitute. Even though it, it would probably be like a side thing, I do have a love for fitness. As you can listen back to the episode and I Upper East Side Wives, <laughs> the episode I and did Viagra with uh, C.J. Woodruff and just and, a little blue your, pill. Let me finish this fucking story. <laughs> uh, C.J. Woodruff and uh, Doug. Uh, Kachijan, who, who you, you know. Yeah, if you listen back to that episode, we talked a lot of fitness. But I, early 2018, I wanted to um, get NASM um, certified as a trainer. And I realized it's a lot more work than I realized. I, I just used the word realized like twice in the sentence. But uh, it's a lot more work than I realized. And I actually would like to do that on the side. I, and I just, I love to like have new knowledge of things. Yeah. So I would love to kind of do that as well but i mean my main thing has been voiceover for a while outside of this and and probably will be voiceover that's what i like doing i like producing spots for people isn't that what your buddy uh who's the nypd cop we had on oh uh ricky he's ricky yeah yeah he's a trainer and and uh nypd i think you're saying voiceover because if you were to say voiceover people i know Adam Hamway, I know, who worked at Sirius XM, was the voice of Wendy's for a year. Oh, really? And that was a huge payday. He bought his house off that money. No shit. Yeah. So, like, any ad for a year that you heard of him talk of like talking about Wendy's promotions, that was his voice, man. Like to me, it's just uh, I I love doing it. I love producing spots for different clients. So um, that's what I'm up to right now. For any of you, any of those wondering, I'm just stepping up my game in that uh, aspect. So. I want to do the voiceover for like those home alarm commercials on television, (laughs) like buy this alarm or this scary guy in black masks will break in and kill your pets. (laughs) All right. I could sell it. I could sell it. At Soft Rep Radio, we'll be back next episode with Fred Galvin and possibly Michael Behenna, maybe, which would be great. Um, But congrats to Michael Behenna, because that was a case I've followed for so long. And I think I said this on the podcast with him, but... I remember I I regularly wore the free first yeah, yeah, Michael Behenna wristband because it was kind of just a reminder to me that, like, don't bitch about stuff you're going through. This guy's in Fort Leavenworth for, you know, what he thinks was doing the right thing. And so I wore that every day. And we had um, Colonel, we had Lieutenant Colonel Alan West on WellCal. And I was wearing that wristband and uh, Alan West was like, hey, nice wristband, man. And he pulled up his sleeve and he had the same thing on. And I thought that was really cool. There were just like other people keeping this guy's, um, you know, keeping him in their thoughts. And it was a real uh, it, it was just really refreshing when he was freed and then really an honor to have him on. And now it, it ultimately has some great closure hearing that yeah. he's been fully pardoned by, well, by President Trump. Yeah, I mean, one way or the other, he served his debt to society. He was sentenced, and he, he has maintained his innocence throughout. Um, got paroled out, served his served his uh, his debt to society, uh, and now he's been pardoned by the president. So his his criminal record is expunged, and I hope that yeah, that gives him some closure, and now he needs to move on and, and live his life, you know. Yeah. And I and I hope he's able to do that, you know, for sure. Much like Fred Galvin, who we're having on uh, next episode, and we're gonna have that in depth in-depth China Talked about discussion. China, yeah. Yeah, that we've... I'm going uh, to prep some notes for that bad boy because, <laughs> like, that's a complicated subject. Hell yeah. Very complicated subject. All right, so uh, stay subscribed and you'll get that as soon as it goes up. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. 
New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.